A smart person learns from their mistakes. A wise person learns from others' mistakes. Welcome to the My Mistakes Podcast. We cover the lessons learned from the mistakes we've made in business so you won't do the same. I'm Chris Chantrulli. Today's guest is Nick LaMagna. He's someone who's had tremendous real estate success, an MMA fighter, and he's used that to build a very successful podcast. Hear how adversity and losing his hand opened up so many doors for him and created opportunities that otherwise never would have taken place. This episode is being brought to you by Don Pablo Coffee. Specialty grade beans roasted in small batches. It's a better cup of coffee. Get yours at Amazon or at DonPabloCoffee.com. All right, so here we are on the My Mistakes podcast, and I've got a guest whose podcast I just did myself. This is Mr. Nick LaMagna, like lasagna, and he is going to tell us some information about real estate, music, and living the high life. Welcome, Nick. Thank you for coming on the My Mistakes podcast. Please say hello to everyone and tell us about yourself. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm looking forward to it. It's been really great talking to you. I loved having you on my podcast right before this, but yeah, man, I'm a Long Island guy. Thought I was going to be some sort of New York City law enforcement guy or firefighter guy or federal agent. Started doing some construction on Long Island, got into some faulty machinery, had a life-altering injury, and I didn't really know where I was going to go or what I was going to do. And I accidentally stumbled into real estate and wound up uh, really kind of going head first into real estate investing and you know, true to your podcast, made a, a lot of mistakes along the way. But over the last 15 years, it thankfully has put me in a position that, uh, you know, when COVID hit, I didn't have to rely on a job or income like I would have in some of these other situations. And it wound up being a tragedy that opened up a lot of doors to some of the best relationships and some of the best opportunities in my life. And at the time, I was also boxing, which I had to, you know, re-strategize after going to physical and ortho, orthopedic therapy for well over a year. I came back and started getting into boxing again. I fought in the New York, New York State Golden Gloves, got into jiu-jitsu on Long Island with uh, hometown hero Matt the Terracera and Mr. Ray Longo, and got my black belt under Matt, had some boxing matches, some MMA fights, and uh, basically for the last 15 years, my life has been uh, jiu-jitsu, boxing, real estate, pizza, and dogs. Let me ask you, what started the life-altering injury or what that was? I was not aware of that. Can you speak to what happened? I was working at like a basically like a seven dollar an hour side job because I was waiting to go into the I wanted I wanted to work on the World Trade Center so I figured while I was waiting to go into some of these like DEA FBI whatever it is that I was processing for which was a lot of different departments I would go union because that way when they started building the Freedom Tower at least I could even if I went in there and put like one screw in a wall one day I could turn around and tell my dog or my kids like hey look I I did something I helped build that thing I just thought it would have been cool so. You know, back to a lot of the things we talk about, about taking advice and asking the right questions. You know, I was working on this machine, just doing very tedious work with cardboard and sheet metal, and it came down. It actually crushed my left hand. And um, I went in immediately for surgery. That was about 30 hours that I actually found out later that it's a total side note, but I, I wound up losing, um, you know, functionality and fingers on my left hand. And they tried to put them together for about 30 hours. And at that point, if you're under anesthesia for 30 hours, you risk brain damage. So I thought it was funny because when I came back out, you know, whatever the next day when I woke up and came out of surgery and stuff, they said, you know what, we called your parents 
And we asked them, like, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to keep trying to work on the hand and risk the brain damage? And I was like, hey, shouldn't that have been my decision? Like, what What if my parents were like, yeah, you know, he was really never never much upstairs. You might as well keep trying to, you know, so I just, it's these things that you don't even think about until you're into these crazy things. But, um, you know, I didn't really think much of it. I just initially, that was very life-changing for me because I, I remember at that time, I was doing a lot of what you and I had talked about that. I was learning a lot and I was taking a lot of courses and I was listening to a lot of people's advice, but I wasn't really doing shit. I was, I was just learning more and I wasn't really taking the actions that I needed or applying the stuff and the advice that I was paying for and I was given. And at that time, one of the formulas that a mentor of mine had given me was 201051, meaning if you find 20 properties, you put offers out on them, you know, 10 of them might get accepted, five of them will wind up you know, going into contract, one of them will actually wind up closing and making you money. So for every one deal you want, you got to find 20. And I remember right before I went into surgery, I made the home screen on like whatever Nokia or flip phone I had at the time, Razor or whatever it was. I made the, 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 the screen 2010-5-1. So I was like, you know what, if I make it through this and I don't bleed to death or whatever happens in surgery, I want the first thing I see when I look at my phone to be a reminder of like, get off your ass and make something happen. Because now you're going to be in a totally different situation that you can't rely on anybody. And now you have these regrets of, you know, I should have boxed more. I should have done more. I, I could have done all these things. And to me, regrets are the, are the worst feeling in life. I'd rather go and fail swinging the bat or, you know, you know, fight my ass off and just get knocked out knowing I went in there and I did my best. And, you know, from there, I still was trying to figure things out. But a year went by that I was getting therapy every single day for my hand. And then I started getting the call. So, you know, you might know probably a lot of guys in New York that are firefighters or, or police or, you know, whatever law enforcement or civil service departments, you take those tests and sometimes you have to wait a year, year and a half to take the medical. Then you have to wait a year to take the psychological. And, you know, before you actually go into the academy, sometimes those lists actually expire. So during that time, I finally started getting called and they said, you know what, your number's up, you're, you're, you're going to go. And when I showed up there, they all started turning me down saying, look, you have to reprocess now because you have this hand injury and we have to make sure that you can still do this job. So I reprocessed again for like another year, year and a half, passed all the tests. And then they said, hey, you're a liability on paper because of your hand injury, you'll never get a job where you have to hold a gun or be responsible for anybody's lives. Even if it's a 0.0001% chance, the department in the city will never take that chance on you. So go find something else to do. So now I couldn't do any of the law enforcement jobs I had all this debt from going to SUNY Albany and get my criminal justice degree. Couldn't do construction. I didn't want to do construction. And, you know, my mom made me read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and got me interested in getting involved in real estate because it was the first thing that I saw, you know, 70% of all millionaires made their money in real estate. The other 30% reinvested it after that. You don't need any money, credit, or experience to get started, which I didn't have any. You know, I just went in and started swinging the bat and taking shots. I wound up doing eight deals in my first six months. And by the time another department finally called me years later and said, hey, we'd actually hire you now, I remember going into my investigator at the time and I was showing him leases on rentals and stuff that I had bought with no money down in Vegas. And he was like, dude, you're probably making more in a month now with these properties than you will in you know, an entire year at top pay, whatever this job is. He's like, keep doing the real estate thing. And it was one of those, those pivot points in life that you look back and you go, man, I've been spending the last three years upset that nobody would hire me. And now that they want me, they can't have me. So it was kind of a cool twist of fate. How old were you at this time? Don't quote me on this, but <laughs> January 31st, 2005 at 8.15 a.m. So that was, I was 25. I don't have the records to go find that, but I'm going to take your word for it. <laughs> now, 
<laughs> I laugh at this because everyone and their mother or everyone and their father has wanted to get into real estate, talked about real estate, said real estate, God's not making any more land, like expressions like that. Now, I know that if I went into real estate, I would probably lose everything immediately because I don't know the first thing about real estate or building or costs or any of that, as we discuss on your podcast about business and scaling and all that stuff. How did you have the confidence after just reading Robert Kiyosaki's book to where you said, yep, I'm confident, I'm going all in? You know, that's a great question because it it took me, like you and I were talking about earlier, that sometimes you have to have not only a mentor that tells you advice that you need to listen to, but you have to find the one that's able to give you that advice in a way that you can soak it in and it can affect you in a way that's going to make you believe in yourself and believe in the action and believe that that the advice is the best advice for you. And I took a lot, and I think about this so much because... I teach real estate courses now, not, not lately, but I, you know, I've, I've taught for thousands and thousands of public speaking things. And I always try and go up there and be there for the person because I spent a lot of time taking courses after that to try and find somebody to teach me. And there was times that me and my mom or me and my dad would drive to like New Jersey or we'd go out to the Long Island Marriott. And I'd spend like hours or days watching speakers up there. And I'd leave there more confused than when I went in. And the only thing I really got from those three days was that dude loves himself. That dude loves talking about himself. And this was basically a three-day commercial for how great he is and why you should buy his shit. And it didn't really help me. And then I actually came across a group at the time where they started talking about not like, again, not to keep going off track, but you, were, you made a really great example that this is perfect for when you and I talked earlier about the financial planner who says, you know what, I only work with high net worth individuals. And then he cancels out everybody that because they don't really know what that means. And maybe they have, you know, a few hundred thousand, but that's not high net worth to one person, but it is to somebody else. So that exact example, everybody kept teaching these courses talking about you're going to be making millions and you're going to have all these employees and you're going to buy all these buildings and you're going to be living in Hawaii. And for a kid that had literally no money, no credit, no experience and couldn't pay his bills living on Long Island and coming from a family that always lived paycheck to paycheck. I didn't relate to that. I didn't believe that I could do that. And then all of a sudden, I finally got with this group that started talking about like, look, you don't have to go and probably shouldn't go and buy a million dollar building or buy a $900,000 studio in the middle of Manhattan that if it goes vacant for one month, the only 10 grand you have have now gone out the door. But what if you started buying one of these properties in Georgia or in Vegas or in Michigan that you can buy them for like 50, 60 grand, you could put like 15, 20 grand in and then you could pull cash out tax-free or you could turn around and sell them for $120,000. And to me, that was a first step. That was a bite-sized deal that I went, you know what? That doesn't really scare me because coming from New York and looking at the price points, buying a house for 40, 50 grand, putting 15, 20 in and reselling it for 100, 120, I felt like if I was gonna make a mistake, that wasn't a mistake that was going to bankrupt my family or cripple me forever to the point that I was never going to do it again. So I literally took like that small step in and, and it took probably months for me to actually pull the trigger and then start making offers on properties. And even to that point, I started retaking the same classes over and over again with these guys and I would bring friends there and I could literally recite what the speaker was saying 
but there was people in the room that were making more money than me because I was too busy making sure I knew it all instead of taking action with what I'd learned. And then literally one of my mentors went like, Hey man, let's look at some properties. And we looked over them and it was a group of like eight of us in a hotel in North Carolina. And I was like, man, here's like 15 deals. These are great deals. I'm going to put offers on them when I go home. And he was like, oh man. And he played the role exactly like we were saying. He knew how to talk to me. He was like, man, I know you're not the guy who needs me to push you to do this, but you know, there's other people watching. If you could do me a favor and maybe just submit these offers anyway. So these people, you know, they're kind of looking at you and you know, it makes me look bad. It makes you look good. So I was like, oh, as a favor to you, I'll submit these offers. But he knew damn well that if I didn't do it right there, when he was right in front of me, I wasn't going to go home and do it at all. So I wound up putting these offers out and a couple of them got accepted. So I, I was pushed and forced into an uncomfortable situation. And that makes you just start taking the steps and taking the steps. And again, learning kind of from that process, a bunch of deals don't work out and you get better. That's a cool thing about real estate is like you put out, you get five, six, seven offers accepted after you've looked at 40, 50, 60, 70 deals, you get better at going, all right, well now I have a reference point. What's a good area? What's a bad area? What's a good deal? What's a bad deal? What's a realistic return? What are some things I'm not seeing? And then even though maybe like that initial bundle of six or seven offers I got accepted, maybe I didn't buy those, but I learned why I wasn't buying those. Okay, this is a different school district. This isn't a good size. This isn't a good price. This is black mold. You know, the rehab's too, budget's too big here. This, you know, so you start to learn what mistakes, so to speak, people are making and what to look for and what not to do. And then eventually one of them checks the boxes and you go, okay, like this looks like a deal. And that's when it really gets freaking scary. And I remember being absolutely terrified because you start getting used to the nose. Like I could do this all day. I put out a hundred offers, a hundred people tell me to eat shit. I'm good. And then somebody says yes. And you're like, oh my God, I didn't mean it. I take it back. I take it back. But that becomes the important part of like, now I've, I've looked at this and found every way to try and make it not work. It looks like we have to go through with it. And we were terrified. And I remember the, the joke I always say is, you know, when, when I did my first real estate deal, I slept like a baby, waking up every two hours, crying and pissing the bed because it was just terrifying, dude. And, but you know, you get through the first one and then it just becomes, there's something that changes. I tell everybody, like even my students, I go, great. You could buy a hundred unit building. You could buy a skyscraper. You could buy a million dollar property, but none of that stuff happens until you buy just this one first deal. And that's the hardest one. And it takes the longest and it's the scariest, but it's like the guy who broke the, the four minute mile. I think Roger Bannister, whatever his name is, you know, once you do it, you break through, then it just becomes another day at the office, another deal, another dollar. And that first one is just huge, but it was, it was hard emotionally to, and, and, you know, financially and educationally to get through and find that first deal. But it's the most important one. And when you have people that'll push you through and literally you don't have another choice. I didn't have another choice. I had to make this work because there was no other way for me and my family to pay our bills. You know, really it's kind of burn the ships and find a way. And then you just have to take an educated guess. But at some point you just have to close your eyes and jump in the water. Were all these flips where you were getting in had a time frame for fixing up, renovating it, flipping it, walking away from it? These are all single family or were you looking to rent and like apartment house type thing? No, this was all single family initially. And the, the, the strategy was interesting because I actually got into real estate right when everything crashed, which at the time I was very upset about because the people that were teaching me was like, it's so easy. You know, everybody's buying and selling properties. If you don't do anything, it goes up. It's worth twice as much in six months. And that really stopped happening right around the time I started investing. So the strategy we were using at the time was I would go and I would pick up rentals 
and you were able to negotiate with the seller to get money back at closing. So I, I'd buy a rental, I'd get in for no money down because the mortgage brokers were doing those liars loans where even if you didn't have a job, you could get approved and they just say you're making X, Y, and Z. I mean, it was really bad when you look back on it now, but you could take that cash and now you have a little bit of a nest egg. And then we tried to do a strategy, which is come back around now that they referred to as Burr, where let's say you're all into this property for $50,000 and it appraises for 100,000. After it's stabilized and you can show for six months that it's got income coming in and it's been fixed up, you can go to a local lender and you can get a cash out refinance at let's say 65,000. So they give you back the 50,000 that you're into it, plus another $15,000 tax free because it's rolled into the loan. So it's like a little mini flip and you're also making nine, nine fifty a month rent. So you're getting all your money back. You're getting tax-free profit on top of it to roll into another project and you get to keep the tenant and keep the property. So that was the initial strategy we were doing with those properties. But what happened was as the market started to tank, lenders stopped doing cash out refinances and then lenders stopped doing rate and term refinances. And then you were getting stuck in these properties that you got what's called a hard money loan, where the, where the hard money lender says, I'm going to give you money based 100% on this property. The deal's a good deal. I don't care that you're on disability and you don't have a job and you don't have credit and you don't have any money. So then you go and you get that property and you fix it up and now to refinance it, you're going to a bank. And the bank does care about your income and your credit and your job history in most cases. Like there's exceptions to this now. And again, like, you know, hindsight, as I learned, there's places you can go. But at that time when the market was tanked, it was really hard to go and find a bank to give you a loan on a property when the economy's in the toilet, nobody knows what's happening and you have no money, no credit and barely any experience. So, you know, I had to get creative and I had to find partners and ways to offload deals and negotiate and all the things that I hated at that time made me a great investor now because now I have all these tools on my tool belt. So I wound up getting really heavy at that time into wholesaling, which is something I still do to this day. But like we were talking about earlier, I called up my mentor and I was like, man, I got a couple more properties. I want to buy them and I want to make them rentals because my whole outlook was that I lost everything when I hurt my hand. I lost my job. I lost my confidence. I lost my finances. I lost my plan. So I was in this like, the world's going to end again at any time. I have to squirrel as many assets as I can. And he was like, I'm telling you, sell those properties, wholesale these deals you have under contract and just make some money with no, no liability, no risk. And I was like, I don't want to do that. So he goes, if you're not going to take my advice, stop calling me because I don't want to talk to you anymore. You're wasting my time. So I put these properties on the market after that just to prove him wrong, saying that nobody's going to buy these. And like the next day I got an offer and I wholesale my first property kicking and screaming by accident. And I was like, wow, that was way easier than, you know, spending six months rehabbing and dealing with contractors and trying to find loans. I could just find a good deal sell it to somebody else within a couple of days, make a few grand on it, which at that point was huge to me, you know, and have no risk and no liability and have a good deal for them and just keep doing that over and over again. So, you know, I've had to pivot and change my strategy a ton over the last 15 years. But, you know, again, it's all learning lessons and experiences that help me for who I am today. How many properties would you guess that you've sold in the time that you've been involved in real estate? Oh, man. Definitely hundreds, if not more than that. You know, I've I've done a bunch of different things from single family to, you know, then I had multifamilies that were like, you know, I, I sold a 66 unit building, I sold a 36 unit building, I recently sold a 24 unit building, a 10 unit mobile home park. I have another 15 unit mobile home park. We're building 31 units over here. I sold packages last year. 
of portfolios. One of them had 28 properties in them. The other one had 32 properties in them. I, I mean, I don't know, because some of them have been small little deals. Some of them have been big deals with a lot of doors on them and commercial deals. And some of them have been portfolios of like a bunch of turnkey properties that one landlord wants to sell and I sell them all in one shot to another investor that wants to buy it. So I have to sit down and really work it through. But I mean, definitely probably mid hundreds when you add it all up. Are you doing this with partners or do you do this on your own? I've had a lot of partners over the last 15 years that I will say haven't worked out. It's ruined friendships because of something that you said on your podcast, which is you start to learn that people say things, but they don't actually do things. So it's when you start to hit hard times or the workload needs to be shared, all of a sudden you start to find that people really aren't willing to put the time in that you are and aren't willing to take the risk that you are. And they aren't willing to back up the stuff that they said they would do initially. And when things get tough, they tap out. And I just don't have that in me. So, uh, you know, that's again, probably comes from jujitsu as well as getting yourself into a tough spot. And then instead of panicking and tapping out, you take a deep breath and you find a way to work yourself out and get back on top. So I promised myself after, you know, probably seven or eight partners that I wouldn't bring on any partners anymore. But I started realizing after you said it too, that sometimes you think of it and they're just parachutes, you know, they're your safety blankets where you feel better, but you don't really need them. But now I do have one partner that I do everything with. And and she's been amazing over the course of the last few years, especially she's, she's so smart. She's so experienced and she calls me out on my stuff and she tells me when things are bad ideas. And, you know, like I was saying earlier, I don't often like what she says to me or the advice that she gives to me. But I know at the end of the day that it always comes from a place that's for my best interest, not hers. So I know it's for the greater good. So I sound a lot of stuff off of her. And although she doesn't, right now, she's not able to help me as much with a lot of this stuff because she's stuck doing a lot of the homeschooling. I get to bounce stuff off of her and she gets to tell me when I'm you know, making bad mistakes or emotional mistakes. So I'll hopefully always do business with her. But past that, really the way I work with people is I don't become like actual business partners with them, but what we'll do is we'll JV on a deal where if somebody wants to put in money and I'll do all the work or I'll put in the money and they'll do all the work or I'll fix up a property and sell it to them and help them. You know, so we'll collaborate on a property specific basis, but I really only have one quote unquote real business partner now. And if that goes south, I'll, I'll never take another one on again. Something a mentor taught me, he said, don't hear the words, hear the message. And whatever anyone gives me advice instead of, because we all react to the timing that someone might tell us something or we pick apart what they said and break down the words and want to know why they said each word and what it means. And now what I do is when someone is critical, I don't think of the actual what they said. I think, why are they saying it and what are they suggesting I get to? So it seems like that same kind of thing. With your jiu-jitsu background and real estate, I definitely think that there is something to be said about the fact that you know how to manage stress because I think anyone in real estate needs to know how, otherwise it's not going to be pretty. Two things I'm curious when you say jiu-jitsu and real estate, I'm curious what the largest amount you've been able to sell a property for, like the largest check you've been cut. I'm curious the worst you've gotten your ass kicked in a fight, and I'm curious of the worst you've kicked someone else's ass in a fight. Let's see, you can tie all those in together. All right, so check-wise, I'll say just this year, for a property that I never saw, 
didn't do any work for at all. I just kind of put the pieces together. I got a check for $141,000 net. So that was a good one. And I have another one that was coming in. I sold an apartment building for bigger than that, but the net with the expenses, even though the check was a bigger check, the take home wasn't as big because of exactly like you said, there was, I got my ass beat on that. So even though at the end of it, there was a big check with my name on it, when you look at what I actually put into that, I probably lost hundreds of thousands of dollars on it because of trusting people that I couldn't trust that left me hanging. And at the end of the day, it was my reputation on the line. So I had to come out of pocket and pay back people hundreds of thousands of dollars. That was actually not my responsibility, but I was the only one left to do it. And I wasn't about to, I wasn't about to not pay somebody or let them take a loss on it. If, if anybody was going to look, if anybody was going to take a loss on that property, it was going to be me because they trusted us and I trusted somebody. And just because that person screwed me, I wasn't going to do the same thing as somebody else. So, you know, even on the ones that I've taken some beatings on, I've always made the investors on that whole because I'm about the long-term relationship. And, you know, I have to take the accountability that, I, you know, maybe I should have read that guy better. Maybe there was different things there, but I definitely took a beating on some of them. But thankfully, it's all washed out that I come out on top on some level with that financially that you don't take a, a total a total beating on there. But there's definitely been, I would say on some of those multifamily ones, some super like stressful points and months that you're, you're cutting checks for 60 grand a week that you don't know if you're going to get them back because there's vacancies and water bills and things that are getting destroyed. And so it, it's, it is a lot of stress, but you know, you, you sit and you, you push through and you go, okay, cool. The cool thing about apartment buildings is that although a month or two months or even six or seven months could be a loss, once you get it up and running, now you have, you know, five or six figures a month sometimes coming in forever after that. And that makes the building worth a lot more and you can set it off and you, you can eventually, you know, cut your losses. And, and thankfully, the market's just been going up for so many years now that even when you make some of these mistakes, if the property sits on the market longer because the contractor's not showing up or not doing what he's supposed to be doing, you put it on the market and you got lucky and the market appreciated, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent anyway. And the last one, so actually I'll give you a, a great example of that is there was a property we were doing in South Carolina because sometimes people will call me and they'll say, hey, I want to, somebody screw me on this property or I'm in over my head on this property. Can you come in and help me figure out how to, how to do it? So I took over this property that was way worse than I was told it was going to be. It was a total shit show, but it was in Charleston, South Carolina. And the contractors were so busy there at the time doing so much work that it was literally worth it for them to walk off my job and have me like go after them and for them to lose money on that job because somebody else was willing to pay them such a premium to come on their job because the market was so crazy. Contractors were at such a supply and demand and the same thing with the properties. So I was like, well, you have to look at it as glass half full and where's the opportunity? If there's really that low level of inventory and people are struggling that much to find good deals and good teams, that means if I take this property that got left high and dry, which we're probably going to lose our ass off because I can't get somebody to come fix it up, what if we just put it on the market? So we literally, instead of bringing the contractor back in and doing that whole dance that now becomes like another six months of this guy's going to overcharge you because he's fixing the other guy's mistakes. And then you wind up the stuff he did wrong at Cornerstone, And now you wind up looking at something that was going to cost you 20, that's going to cost you 50. We threw it on the market and got an offer $90,000 over what we were planning on getting for it anyway, just because the market's crazy. 
and it got so inflated and there was no properties that somebody that just wanted that house emotionally paid for it. And we wound up, I think, clearing like over 90 grand on that easily for a property that we, if we would have continued to go the traditional route, probably we would have lost money on. So I definitely don't have the stomach that you would just based on what you were saying, that amount of money in itself would uh, definitely freak the hell out of me tremendously. So Nick, if you can speak to anyone who fights MMA, jiu-jitsu, anything like that, being someone who wrestled in high school and knowing the pain of sucking weight and the anxiety or that feeling when about to go up against someone, that can be nerve-wracking. What got you into fighting and was it something you were just naturally drawn to? And are you someone that has experienced that or are you trained enough where you keep that under control and under wraps, whether it's MMA or boxing? So I think every guy on some level watches fighting and, you know, thinks that they could fight or imagines themselves like being able to do that. So, you know, I think like naturally everybody's thought about that on some level, like, oh, I like the box or I'd like to get into jiu-jitsu or whatever it is. But I was in college and I was powerlifting and I remember my brother started boxing out on Long Island. I forget which town it was offhand, but, you know, somewhere in Nassau County. And he was telling me what a great workout it was. And I looked at the guy who was the boxing instructor at the time and he was like 155 pounds and so was I, but I was benching like 315. And I remember thinking... I'm this strong, like power lifter dude. I'll go in there and I'll, I'll go down there a couple of times. I'll let the guy feel good about hitting me a little bit. And then I'll just knock him out because I'm strong. I went down there and it was not the case at all. I'll never forget like the first time going in there and being so confident and cocky. And it's like we were saying about business, you know, you don't even, you're not even really scared because you don't even know what to be afraid of yet. And when I got hit by a boxer, the very first time it sucked so bad. Like the immediate panic and alarms that went off of like the fight or flight just elevated immediately. The second he hit me and I was like, this was not what I thought it was. And I was literally while I was in there trying to think of excuses to not come back next week. I was like, I'll never come back here again. Like if I have to move, like whatever it is, I don't want anything to do with this. And I left there. Oh, I, I closed my eyes and I swung as hard as I could. And the guy like backed off and I was like, okay, I got him. And then I looked up and he was holding his balls. I punched him in the nuts. I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I was like running around for like the rest of the round. But the fear of going back consumed me for like the next week. I was like, this is horrible. Like even like I couldn't even enjoy my weekend because all I could think about was I have to go back there on Wednesday and this guy's going to kick the shit out of me again. Like I don't want to go. And I went again. And it wasn't as bad, but I got my ass kicked again, but leaving there and knowing that I was scared, but I went and I did it anyway, I wasn't upset that I got beat up. I was so on like a high of conquering that fear and doing it anyway, just like the roller coaster thing, that that was the kind of thing where that battle on the weeks that I gave into that, because there was definitely weeks that I was like, I'm not going. And I made an excuse to justify not going. And then once like, Four o'clock to five o'clock passed, and I was like, it would have been done. I could have gone. I'm looking at the pictures they're posting of it. The regret of not going and knowing that I kind of bitched out because I was scared when I should have just gone anyway, and what I was making in my head was worse. That pushed me to keep going back and keep going back and keep going back. Just like with anything, I think it's a it's a muscle 
whether it's boxing or business or whatever it is you're, you're going after, if you start making excuses to let fear or insecurities make you not do things in life, you're going to live a, a sad life. So I started pushing to go do that. And then, you know, I started getting better, obviously, just the workout of it and knowing how hard it was and, and the discipline that went into it. And it started controlling other parts of my life because now I'm going, you know what, I don't want to get drunk all weekend and eat pizza, you know, all day, every day, because now when I go box on Wednesday or Friday, I feel that. And now, like, so I started taking much better care of myself and boxing really helped shape me and discipline me. And then I started taking fights. And then after I hurt my hand, I started getting into jujitsu after that because uh, and I, I didn't love it at first. And at the time, it wasn't really something that boxers and, and MMA guys weren't really on the same page. But after I hurt my hand, I started getting into kickboxing. And then I started going down to Matt Serra's, just knowing that like you can't get hit in the head every day. I like switching up like, okay, Monday, you do your striking. Tuesday, you do your jujitsu. Wednesday, you do striking. Thursday, you do jujitsu. And then I started just falling in love with it. The, the discipline and the skill and the workout and the environment and the people like Matt Sarah and some of the good friends I've made there just become addictive and it winds up becoming like your friends and your world and your family. So I just kind of took off from there with it and then started doing some jujitsu tournaments, some boxing matches, and then eventually some amateur MMA fights. Matt Sarah, his gym was in Floral Park, right? He was in East Meadow initially. And then he was in Huntington, and then he, so he had East Meadow in Huntington. Then it was Levittown in Huntington, but now it's just Huntington. When you crushed your hand, so you were already into boxing, crushed your hand. Was that one of the initial thoughts you had when having to have your hand reconstructed? Like, will I box again? Was it important enough to you at that point to where you were scared of losing it, or were you just getting into it and that's how it registered? You were. Just wondering if you're going to be able to use your hand. No, it was a huge thing because, you know, I look back and I was like, man, I, I, sh- I should you. You start to think about all the times you didn't go and you start to go like, well, if I would have known that I would have potentially never been able to go again, I would have gone three times as much. And all those times that I bitched out now, like you start beat, I, I start beating myself up about that. So I started again, promising myself, like, I'm going to find a way to box after this. And I remember the very first time, maybe like six, eight months after I hurt my hand. I had my buddies come over into the backyard and with my brother and some of my friends, we started to box just very lightly. I was like, let me just see how it feels. Let me just see what I can do. And I put a glove on and I jammed my friend Ed Sappho in the head and I shattered my hand immediately and rebroke it. Like, and then I went to the hospital again and they were like, why would you try and box with one hand? And I'm like, I don't know. So it took a long time to get back to like desensitizing it and just hitting the bag and getting to a place. And then I, I promised myself I was going to fight. Regardless, I was going to find a way to fight and I was going to go do it just because it was something that I always wanted to do and I always made an excuse not to do it. And now I don't know what's going to happen a month from now, three months from now, 10 months from now. Could I lose an arm? Could I lose my other hand? Like, you don't know. So it definitely pushed me to just start doing things that I was always putting off and fearing and definitely took away my excuses for not doing it anymore just because I was scared. How's your hand now? I only have use of my thumb. You can't move the fingers? Like you can't hold a coffee cup? Like nothing? I lost four fingers. They only kept the thumb. So I, like when I box, it was a whole thing because you have to get sanctioned by the athletic commissions for MMA. And you have to get sanctioned by USA Boxing for boxing. And so having them clear me to fight with like half of a hand missing was a bit of an uphill battle. you know. And again, that was one of those things where it would have been very easy to say, you know what? The commission said I can't box because of my hand injury. It's not safe. I'm just not going to do it. But 
you know, we fought and we battled and I had really good people like Ray Longo and, and Dr. Sherry Wolkin from Law MMA that was part of the commissions that helped work with me and figure out how I could put the glove on and how I could protect my hand and how I could get the MMA glove on and how we could work with the New Jersey State Athletic Commission. So it was a process. You know, I tell everybody, whatever it is, you know, boxing with one hand or, you know, doing real estate or doing a podcast, man, it's all the same butterflies. It's all the same insecurities. It's all the same feelings, regardless of the magnitude of it. Like fear is fear. And then the, you, you just push past and you find a way or you find an excuse to get around it. And then you get that same feeling after you've conquered that, that I just feel it's like addictive. And that's what life's all about. You know, it's just like you said earlier, having fear and controlling it because everybody does. And you didn't know when you went into surgery, if they were going to save your hand or did you know you were losing fingers when you went under the anesthesia? I thought I was going to be fine because the way it had happened, oddly enough, was the, the machinery was so heavy and sharp that they, I remember being in the ambulance and they were like, dude, it's like a surgical precision cut. They were like, it was January and they were like, you have no idea how many people stick their hands in lawnmowers and snowblowers and there is no shot of reconstruction. They were like, yours will be an open and shut case. So I went in there with all the confidence in the world that I was going to wake up two hours later and be fine. I had no idea they were going to have all those complications. So when I woke up, I, I was really confused and thrown off and upset. Well, how do they break to you? Like, Sorry, it didn't work out the way we thought, or high five, or high one. Just kidding, Nick. You don't have fingers. Like, what do they say to you? I remember because of the anesthesia, like the 30 hours under anesthesia, when I woke up, my I was so swollen. Like, my whole body was so swollen. And I remember, like, them asking, like, hey, do you, do you know what happened? And I remember kind of being very confused about like, Hey, you know what, what happened to me? Like, why am I like all puffy? Well, like what, what's going on? The doctor eventually came over and I remember him like telling me like, Hey, you know, we, we took, we went for 30 hours straight. Here's kind of what happened. Here's why we were not able to save it. Do you have any questions on it? And you know, they just kind of looked at me, but I remember them gently. And the guy that did the surgery was great. Like he had great bedside manner. He was very gentle and, and nice and, and calm when he broke me the news. Yeah, I just remember it sucked. I was in like disbelief and I immediately was like, man, like, you know, just, I was crushed. I felt awful. And I was like, man, there goes my whole life. You know, like, what am I going to do now? So you played guitar and played festivals and all that prior to losing your hand, correct? Yes. Yeah. So when we were on your podcast, I talked about tearing my peck, but I didn't talk about the emotional impact it had, but I think that's really what led to my uh, drug addiction becoming out of control was losing the fact of identity and how I identified as a bodybuilder and not competing anymore. And that was a true depression for me. Did you have any of that knowing that you couldn't play the guitar in the same way or ever again or anything along those lines? A hundred percent. I was miserable for a long time. And I'll tell you, out of I've gotten back to almost everything I did prior, except for playing guitar. And that's that's been one of the things I miss it like more than anything, just sitting down and, and playing. But it was interesting because actually, you know, two of my best friends, Mark O'Connell and Sean Cooper, who are coming on your podcast soon from Taking Back Sunday, and they actually played like a show for me. When they were straight light right at the time, they played like a benefit show to me. And then they bought me actually a, a lefty guitar to start to learn how to replay. And I, it's just, it's been so hard to kind of 
try and figure it out. So I still mess around with it from time to time, but I still get sad and I still feel like I, you know, like I can feel them and I can play them. And, you know, you listen to songs, you want to pick it up and just start playing it. So that's definitely been one of the things that I miss the most that I wish I could still do. But yeah, the depression on all of it. And, you know, even though, like you said, the pills, they have me on so many painkillers and PTSD drugs and all those things. And at the time, two or three of my friends at that time, right around like 30, 60, 90 days of that happening, OD'd and died. And I remember like thinking like, get me off of this, this medication. Like, I don't want anything to do with it. Even taking it as I was directed, like I had a nurse coming over and giving me all the pills as was directed. And I pulled myself off of it because I didn't want to be on it anymore. And I remember going through withdrawal, even taking it as directed. So I, I, you know, it's such a dangerous thing, but I remember thinking like, man, I can't imagine how much worse that would have been if I was taking it for longer and was taking it as it like abusing it. I can't, I, I don't know if I'd be able to get past that addiction. You know, if somebody, if I could have gotten up and taken a pill or something like that, I would have. Like, it was a very eye-opening experience that made me, you know, very uh, empathetic to people that are struggling with addiction. Like, I can't imagine, like, accidentally, like you did, you know, you, you get addicted, you don't even realize it. No, it's funny how you just said it like that, too, because things happen in a very funny, mysterious way where for you to even experience the loss of friends or people ODing then puts everything in perspective to all right, you lost your fingers, but you didn't lose your life. So like it puts everything in perspective to where, uh, I mean, how old were you when that happened? 25. You know, I, I tell everybody too, I like looking back, I, I feel like I was a, an asshole before that happened and it really changed my outlook and my personality forever. So I feel like it was probably a wake up call because I wasn't listening to whatever else was trying to make me change. Same age I was when tearing my pack. Wow. 25. One of my uh, <laughs> one of my biggest fears is losing a finger <laughs> because my grandfather cut his thumb almost off. They were to save it when he was woodworking. My dad telling me that story always made me like nervous. And when I moved six months ago, I was loading a grill into the back of my truck. And with my dad, ironically, my dad grabbed the front part and I put my hand underneath and the top opened and my hand was in the back and it hit i'm looking at the scar right now it hit my thumb and i felt just like it closed and i like let out a i'll say yell might have been a shriek a scream <laughs> i don't know as my dad lifted so i could pull my thumb out getting queasy thinking about it the amount of blood gushing out of my hand I had to hold my hand up and I asked my dad, is it still there? Is my thumb still there? I was so scared to look because of the feel. When you had that happen, did you go into shock immediately? Did you see a lot of blood and panic? Bring me back to that extremely traumatic incident of your life. And let's try not to have too much PTSD or get hooked on drugs after you share this, but <laughs> let's get right up to that point. What was that like? You know, it, it happened very slowly in, in my head. I remember it very well because the, the plate that comes down is very hard and the machine was actually off. So it wasn't like it was coming down at a fast pace. It kind of touched my hand. That I, It was such a light, gentle thing that I thought it was somebody going, hey, break time. Like, that's literally just what it felt like, a little tap on my hand. And I looked oh, down, and I was like, oh, shit, it's the plate. And then I started trying to pull my hand out, and I couldn't. And then I knew, like, this thing's going down before it comes back up. And I, I'm, 
I remember turning to the kid next to me and like yelling and being like, like my hand or whatever I yelled at him. And then I looked at him thinking he was going to help me and he was in shock. And I was like, well, that, that didn't work well. Like he froze up. I got to do something here. And I remember thinking like, okay, this is going to be really bad. I'm going to have to make some quick decisions to, to try and get myself to the hospital or get some attention because I, I was just scared that what was going to happen was I was going to bleed to death there because you know, it was a major, major injury. So as soon as like the machine like pressed it, I remember I, I took my hand and I wrapped it underneath my shirt and I just st- started trying to hold it up like towards my heart just because, you know, I don't know, watching whatever stupid shows I learned. I, I thought I knew at the time. No, no, it's true. It's true. It'll slow down the bleeding. It's gravity heart pumping up so all right so i i had a semi-good idea but i started running around just i think yelling for somebody to like hey somebody's got to take me to the hospital somebody's got to take me to the hospital and this dude steve that i work with was like hey what happened he's like get in the car so we were in the car and the guy's like hey man he's like why are you holding your hand and i, I was like what are, you, what are you kidding me i was like the, the machine crushed my hand and he was like i thought your foot got run over by a forklift and that's why you were running around like your foot hurt and i was like no and then he looked at his jacket and saw that there was like blood everywhere. And he was like, and then he froze up and he was like stopping at stoplights. And I was like, please just go like, just drive best case scenario as you get pulled over. He kind of dropped me off in front and was like, all right, well, good luck. And so like I walked in and I was like, yeah, so, you know, I need to see a, a doctor like right away. And they were like, well, you know, like what's going on? Here's a clipboard. Give your insurance cards. <laughs> your insurance card. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting because I use this example a lot that, I walked in like, I have an emergency. And they were like, yeah, take a seat. You and everybody else in here has an emergency. And I looked around and like, that was one of the things that was so eye-opening to me that it was like, holy shit, like two o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the afternoon, Tuesday morning or Christmas day, the hospital emergency room is always packed, standing room only with a multiple hour wait in the emergency room. And that room is filled with people that walk up that day and had no idea that life was going to throw them a curveball and kick their ass, you know? And it was just so eye-opening to be like, man, you always think it's somebody else, but then you realize that that's the room every single day, that 24 hours a day is full of people whose lives were changed for something they didn't see coming. And I think about that all the time since that day. That's really powerful. And it's funny you say that because I think about that very often because I've shared the podcast Last year, December 19th, my brother at 37 years old went into the hospital and he becomes septic from strep throat and he almost died. He was on life support for three days. And when you were talking about being swollen, they weren't sure what was wrong with his arm. And they thought it could be maybe gangrene because it was very swollen and he had 103 fever. So they did what's called a fasciotomy and they cut the back of his arm from the top of his left arm all the way down to his wrist. So they just filleted and then they leave the muscle totally open. So like you're looking at like an anatomy chart of open arm all the way down to bone and it has a, a bandage around it in the hospital. And like, as I looked at my brother laying there unconscious on a ventilator, I thought to myself, like we were interacting earlier that day. Like how did this happen so fast? Even people that I know who are in accidents of some sort or were messing around it led to something like this. You asked me in your podcast, my favorite quote, and one of them to me is this. It's a very fine line between a great story and a tragedy. Man, that's a good one. 
Yeah, and you just saying that, like, for someone to be into guitar and, like, accomplished and touring and fighting and boxing and, like, so much promise, but it also shows your perseverance where it's not like that held you down. It's you've accomplished more with one hand than most people have with two. So it, it goes to show you that bumps in the road, not playing guitar. And I can't imagine wanting to do something and loving something so much and having that held from you. I can't imagine that. But I mean, your story, it's so much more compelling now, knowing that like it was a disability at that level. When you went through that, how long did you go through therapy, mental health? Did you go through anything along those lines to kind of like come up with a new identity for yourself or accept the fact that you only had one good functioning hand? You know, they they tried to get me to go to therapy many times and I just didn't. I just didn't, you know, I, I don't even really know why. Like, I know it, it probably helps some people, but I looked at it as it, there's nothing they're going to say that's going to change it. You know what I mean? So I don't want to spend any time discussing it. I want to get past it. So for a long time, it was, you know, trying to focus on better things because I went from literally like training for the Golden Gloves to all of a sudden a day later from the surgeries and the anesthesia, I couldn't walk for, I, I think, weeks. I couldn't even, I didn't even have enough strength to stand up. And I was like, how was I running like 10 miles in boxing yesterday and today I can't even get up? Like it, it was just, it was such a twisted mind thing for me to kind of get past. I was having therapy every single day. Like one day a physical therapist would come, the next day an occupational therapist would come. And that was like every day for about a year or so. And then I finally started getting back and like there was other surgeries along the way because then the swelling goes down and they find more stuff. So I think it was probably like a year and a half before I, I finally like had the courage to like go to the gym and start trying to lift stuff and figure out what was going to hurt, what was not going to hurt. And it, it's little battles, you know, then you, you go out for the first time in a long time and you don't know how people are going to react to you, or what they're going to say. And then everybody wants to ask you the story. And then, you know, one guy drank too much and he says some stupid shit and then some, you know what I mean? Like, and then some other person, it, it it's such a weird dynamic that I, I think even to this day, you forget about it and then it comes up again and you, you relive stuff and you, you, you know, you, I don't know, man. Like it's it's one of those weird things that you never really forget, and it just kind of comes back sometimes. Different things trigger it, you know. Whether it's uh, the cold weather starts to make it hurt, or you know, you go to pick up a guitar, you do a podcast, and somebody asks you about it. I don't know timeline wise, man. I mean, it's some days it seems like it was just yesterday, and it feels like it's a fresh thing in my mind, and then other times it just seems like it was, you know, kind of a dream or a lifetime ago. It's it's really weird. How long ago was it? Sixteen years. Damn. Wow. I do not mean to sound insensitive in asking this, but like, do you ever forget that you lost your hand? Sure. I try and really be appreciative of things. And I try and really, I try and stay very busy. You know, what, one of the things I, I love about jujitsu and boxing is whatever you're doing, you're forced to be in that moment. So like that always takes me out. If I feel like I'm overwhelmed with business or I'm down about my hand or just anything, there's nothing like somebody trying to punch your face or choke you or snap your arm that causes you to say like, I need to be focusing on what's in front of me this second, or I'm going to be like in a bad spot or hurting or beat up or something like that. So, 
you know, it, it makes you forget. And then when you go back like a few hours later and you're like, oh yeah, I forgot like this is even a thing. Like doing things like that to keep myself busy, like doing podcasts or focusing on real estate or, you know, exercising or, or training all helps you forget that stuff and start to appreciate just that you can still even do it because there was a time when you couldn't. So, you know, I, I definitely, there's, there's times I forget about it, which is obviously a good thing. <laughs> so I, I started going to therapy a couple of years ago, trying to understand why no matter what was going on in my life, I never felt happy, whether I was feeling so lucky for my wife, for my kids, for my parents being alive, for my relationship with my brother. And I didn't understand like why I still felt like a sense of emptiness and not feeling happy. And many sessions, a couple of years of therapy, even different therapists, and they would all ask, like, why are you here? What brings you to therapy? And I'd say, I don't know. I want to be happy. And they would say things like, well, what makes you think that people are happy? Or like, well, what are you trying to achieve? And I didn't quite know. And the more I studied, the more I came up with my own definition and what I realized happiness to be, I really break it down in my mind. It's how fully committed you are to doing something and staying busy because when you're fully vested to something and all your attention is going to it, that's when I find I have the most happiness to not think about other things. So as we talked about in your podcast, and I would say like when I spend time with my kids, I now consciously will not bring my phone with me I'll take myself out of other situations so I'm not distracted because I learned you can never be happy if your mind is divided into two places. It's got to be fully into one thing to truly appreciate it and realize what's going on. And it sounds like that's what you're saying with jujitsu or anything for that matter. Yeah, I mean, I love that. I think you're you're dead on. I try and definitely be more present. And, you know, I, I again, I try to put things into perspective, which doesn't always work out. You know, I obviously have ups and downs, but I'll throw another quote back at you that I love is I cried when I had no shoes until I met the man with no feet. So I, I always try and think like whenever I start to get down about like what happened, I, I always just go, man, like I met so many people after this happened. They came up to me with stories about something, something that happened to them or people that they worked with or people in their life that had way worse injuries, way worse injuries. Like even when I was going to therapy and like for my hand and stuff or at the hospital, I was coming across so many people that would have traded place with me in a second that I was like, I have no right complaining or feeling bad about myself because there's people everywhere that have it way worse. So I need to just be happy that this is where it's at and it's not any worse than this. I had a client years ago and he ended up becoming a good friend. and. It was Eric. And so what happened is he was such a nice, outgoing, friendly guy, like really, really, really just a great person. And he was adopted. He was from Columbia and he was adopted and he lived in East Meadow. He went to Iraq in the Marines and he was there for a very short period of time. Like he had just gotten there. And he was called to wherever you're called to by your commanding whoever. And he was informed that he was going home. And he thought that they were messing with him to break him like they do in the Marines and something or other where they were making this up. They told him, you're going home. Your mom was killed in a fire. And turns out there was a house fire and his mom 
I don't know if the pilot went out. It was an electric stove and they lost power or it went out and she put like a dish rag touching the stove from the counter when power went on or something. It caught fire. She was on the second floor. House burnt down. Mom died. He gets informed while he's in Iraq. He flies to Germany, to Rammstein, Germany, and then he flies to the United States. He told me how all he had was a bag with a T-shirt, a jacket, whatever clothes were in that bag were now his only possessions on the planet. And he said he pulled up in a taxi and it was just like destroyed rubble, burnt to the ground. And here it was like a year and a half later that I first met him. And when I tell you the nicest guy, always a smile on his face, always just friendly. And I said, Eric, can I ask you a question? And he's like, yeah. And I said, how do you get up in the morning? How do you smile? How do you laugh? Like, how are you still such a good person? How are you not bitter? How are you not depressed? Are you not sad? And he kind of like chuckled at me and he said, what could I do if I walked around in life just being an asshole? He said, do you think I'd make more friends or I'd have less people in my life? And it hit me like a ton of bricks that like, here his mind process that to like, you only have one person on the planet, your adopted mother, and she dies. And yet he still had a big enough heart to be open and kind to people. And that's probably the person he said the line to me, there's people out there that have it worse than me. And in my head, I'm thinking, I don't know about that. Like you might have it the worst I've ever heard someone have it, but his belief, I didn't say that to him, but his belief that there was someone who had it worse was so amazing to me because he's probably right. Someone always has it worse than you. And it puts things in perspective. So to your example or your quote, it would be horrible to meet someone with no feet to go through a situation like that. At any point, did you blame yourself or anger that you should have done something different that day? Oh yeah, I'm sure. You know, I, I think everybody has those stages of grief, right? You get, you get mad and you get sad and you, you know, there's all kinds of different stuff in there, but yeah, you know, I, I've relived that moment a, a million times. There's just nothing you can do about it. You know what I mean? But I've definitely, I've made corrections in my life to try and learn from lessons and mistakes from that day for a lot since then for, you know, just realizing that not knowing all the things of what could go wrong and not having somebody there to stop me from making those mistakes. Like the whole point of your podcast, I was like, this is a lesson for everything in life. Like I don't ever want to be doing something that I could get financially or physically or mentally or emotionally like hurt permanently or seriously. I want to find somebody to help me through all that and make sure that I don't take those bumps and bruises and that I don't make these mistakes that they've already made already. So, you know, I call them black belts. So like everybody thinks like, a black belt, somebody that can kick everybody's ass. And I look at it as like, well, maybe, but more importantly, they're a person who has gotten their ass kicked every way possible and tried to reinvent the wheel every way possible. And they know this doesn't work. This does. This is the best way. This is the worst way. You're going to get hurt if you do it like this. And I've always since that day 
tried to surround myself with black belts and podcasting and real estate just in in life to learn from mistakes which is why i think your podcast is so so genius because that you know again everybody can show the good stuff on social media but it's the things that people may not be sharing and the mistakes that they've made that could save somebody's life or, or life savings i love your perspective of a black belt the way you just described that that's amazing so again not to be insensitive with the question but i'm Honest to God, curious how you'd answer. Let's assume that in your hundreds of real estate actions you've made, let's just assume millions of dollars. Is there any dollar amount that you in your mind would be willing to give up or would have given up to save your hand if you could magically change things around? I don't think so because, you know, the the opportunities and the people and the relationships that I've formed since then, I think are, are irreplaceable. And, you know, more importantly, I just, I think if I would have continued on that path with the type of person I was, like, I don't like who I was before that. I don't like what I was about. I don't, I don't, I think I, I was very selfish and I just, I, I didn't like who I was and I, I wouldn't have been happy going down that road and continuing to be that person because of the way I think I would have treated the people in my life. Not that I'm, I'm perfect or anything like that at this point, but I don't think money can replace that. And as much as being hurt sucked, it gave me, I mean, I found real estate because of it. I probably would have been a New York City cop or something like that. If not, and who knows what would have happened there, especially the last year or two with all the crazy stuff happening. I got a couple of years at home with my parents and my brother and, you know, I got to hang out with my dog every day. And you know, if my friends would come over every day at lunch or hang out with me and, you know, bitch about their wives and girlfriends or whatever it is. But, you know, and, I, and since then I've been able to, you know, I spend two, three times a day on the mat making great friends at jujitsu or boxing or traveling the world or spending weeks in Hawaii or, you know, connecting with people on podcasts. I don't think any of these things would have happened if that didn't happen. And it was a tough lesson, but I don't think you can put a dollar amount on the experiences I've made and the, the relationships that I've made since then because of it. Wow. Well, why don't we leave it there? Because the information that you've shared really, we covered real estate transactions. And I guess this kind of like speaks to the point of what I was saying earlier today on your podcast with Connects and the idea of what Connects stands for. And I was on someone's podcast last night and they said, it seems like connects is something that was like in your head or it's so much you like your personality, what you shared in the hand being crushed. That's what I'm taking away. And I think others will as well, because to tell stories of success, everyone has successes in life at some point, some larger than other people's, but we're all kind of like, relatable to one another, having to deal with adversity and things that don't go the way that we plan them to go. And again, another one of my favorite quotes, I have too many. And when you ask me for them, nothing comes to mind. <laughs> a boxer doesn't lose a fight because he gets down. A boxer loses a fight because he doesn't get back up. Boom. I love that. And it's like, you were knocked down and you sprung back up. Like you didn't get up. Like it was like a three count and you were right back up. And then you realized what had happened, but like, it's just so amazing. And I think that's why you've achieved the success that you have 
because you had to learn that lesson first, which put everything into perspective. And it's just, I found one of the craziest things to be how things happen at the times in life they do. And to anyone that discounts or doesn't have a belief in a higher power, I'm amazed that people can say they believe there's nothing when you line up and look at the order of how things happen. And I believe that once you realize that you're not in the driver's seat and you're actually in the passenger seat along for the ride, just helping to make the decisions and listen to that voice deep down, that's when I feel like everything starts happening for you and not to you in life. I love that and I a thousand percent agree. I'm still spinning and I have so much respect for you just because I think of how I would have reacted to that happening at different stages in life and from a pec tear to just other things I've gone through. Like, it's funny how we can all learn the same lesson going through different struggles yet still come out with the same lesson learned among all of us. I think that that's amazing, man. I, I, I love exactly, exactly that, man. That's why I like connecting. I knew there was a reason you and I connected. I just didn't realize why, but definitely, you know, you, me, Billy Alvaro, like same type of guy. I love connecting with people. Matt, Matt Serra always says it. He says, you know, water finds its own level. And I, I feel like that's kind of what this did. So where can people find you? How can they learn more? And what is your podcast so everyone can find you and see all the celebrities and people you know in the world of MMA, music, networking organizations? Go on. (laughs) I appreciate that, man. So I have the easiest website in the entire world. It's www.nicknicknick.com. So if you go there... There's a lot of information on ways to start to do real estate together. If you want to buy deals from me, sell properties to me, or find ways that we can start to work together and partner up on some deals, that's an option. But the easiest way to connect with me other than that is if you go on nicknicknick.com slash links, L-I-N-K-S, you'll see all the ways to listen to my podcast, which is the A-Game podcast. And you'll see all the ways to connect with me on social media on top of that. So nicknicknick.com slash links will kind of bring you everywhere. I highly or strongly encourage people to check out your podcast because you're present in your interviews and any that I've watched you do, you're not distracted. You're really into your guests and that comes through. Your passion for the things that you really engage in, that comes through. And I think people enjoy tuning in and watching those that are passionate about something. So I appreciate that, man. Thank you. Keep doing your thing, and I greatly appreciate it, and I look very forward to getting to know each other better because I think we have more in common than we even realize. Uh, A thousand percent agree, man. Thanks so much for doing my podcast today, and thank you very much for having me on yours, man. This was awesome. For more info, visit getconnects.com. That's G-E-T-C-O-N-N-E-X-X.com. Or visit us on Facebook at Connects, I-N-C, or on Instagram at Connects underscore. And a special thanks to our sponsor, Don Pablo. All their coffee is roasted in small batches, providing the freshest tasting coffee imaginable. Simply put, it's a better cup of coffee. Order on Amazon or at DonPabloCoffee.com. Thank you.